Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. Let's pray. As we come this evening to your word, we ask that you would grant us two things that you give us an estimate of ourselves and that you grant us a deeper estimate of your love. That in the cross of Jesus Christ that you make these two things plain. And so we ask Spirit that you would come and speak for your servants are here listening, amen. Listen carefully to these words of the prophet Habakkuk. He asks the question that plagues every human who lives upon the face of the earth. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? These words were written hundreds of years ago 
but they capture and express perfectly the predicament of our lives. It is the human predicament. Where is God in a world that is so riddled by evil? Why is he so silent? Does this predicament really concern him? Is he able to do anything about this particular situation? These are the questions that live in the human heart. Because day to day and year to year, the question only seems to deepen as wars rage around the globe, as loved ones are diagnosed with incurable diseases, as we lose friends and family to death, as we experience the wound of deceit and betrayal, as natural disasters sweep away life without notice, we ask, where is God? Elie Wiesel, a Jewish survivor of the Nazi Holocaust, as a young boy and witnessed the death of his family, years later he wrote a short novel, an biogra- autobiographical account of his sufferings in the Buchenwald concentration camp. He tells of one particular evening where the prisoners returned from work at the factory. The SS surrounded them there in the courtyard. They called roll and announced that there were three inmates who were to be executed for harboring weapons. Two grown men and one young boy. The prisoners were marched to the gallows to hang in front of the entire company. It was a measure of intimidation. As they were being prepared to die, Wiesel hears one older man behind him say these words, where is merciful God? Where is he? The chairs were tipped over. Fortunately for the older men, they died instantly. Their weight was sufficient to snap their neck. But the young boy was not so fortunate. He dangled, and somewhere between life and death, he struggled. The SS soldiers then marched the entire company past the gallows as the young child struggled to die. Wiesel once again hears the prisoner behind him say, for God's sake, where is God? Crying out in desperation. And then Wiesel comments this. He says, and from within me, I heard a voice answer. Where is he? This is where, hanging here from this gallows. It was cynical despair. Wiesel's conclusion in the face of human suffering that God was there in the gallows that he was on trial in the dock, and that God was dead. Of course, many in the modern world have joined Elie Wiesel with that conclusion. Many others have simply retreated into despair. They, in the face of all the sadness and the sorrow that lives in our world, 
asking the question, where is God, and not knowing how to find resolution. And tonight, it's especially appropriate for us as Christians to ask the question, where is God? Where is God in all of this, especially that we're reading tonight? The betrayal of Jesus, where his friend, his companion, who he knew and walked with, who he'd shared fellowship, who had controlled the purse of the company of disciples, the treasurer. Where was God when this man betrayed Jesus? And then where was God in the garden when the large regiment of men arrived to arrest Jesus? Where was God at the trial? Deceit, explicit manipulation, the truth not being spoken. Where was God? Why wasn't he defending Jesus? And then where is God when Pilate bargains, attempting to get out of it, but bargains with the religious leaders? And they say that we have no king but Caesar. And then where is God as Jesus' body is degraded, publicly tortured, humiliated in front of hundreds if not thousands? Where is God in all of this? One thing that's important, in fact essential for us to note that that question is not our own question. It's not one of modern making. It's one that the prophet Habakkuk asked, and it's one that the Gospel of John, as John pulls together his life of Jesus, is very aware of as well. We don't need to think that we catch the Bible or God himself off guard with this. But as we read across John's Gospel, we also find a very startling answer. That Jesus has something to say about where God is in all of this carnage and mess and suffering and sadness and human pain. There's two phrases that are repeated through the Gospel of John in particular that bring our attention to this startling answer. The first one is actually repeated on three separate occasions. And Jesus is speaking about his death. He begins to do this in chapter three. And then he does it again in chapter eight. And then he speaks about it one final time in chapter 12. And he uses a very confusing term. He speaks of the son of man being lifted up. When he uses that language, he is employing language actually from the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. It speaks of the servant of God who would come to renew and restore all things, that he would be high and lifted up. You see, it was a term of honor, exaltation. And yet Jesus uses this very term to speak of his crucifixion. You see, for him, This was not a moment where he thought he was being just degraded and humiliated. 
He saw it as his glory. He saw it as his exaltation. He saw it as his honor. But he repeatedly speaks of being lifted up. A second phrase that Jesus uses repeatedly though, and actually seven different times in the Gospel of John. We read an example from John 18, where Jesus says, I am he. It begins all the way back in chapter four and you find it progressively growing where Jesus is answering that I am he, and once again we have a very clever allusion by Jesus to the prophet Isaiah. In chapters 40 through 53, Isaiah repeatedly uses the phrase where God says, I am he, the Lord. And Jesus is identifying himself as the one sovereign, the true God of all things, who brought all things into existence and alone has the power to renew and restore them. But then we find John in chapter eight do something very interesting. Jesus, as he is speaking to the crowds, in John chapter eight and verse 28, Notice how he brings these two things together. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. It's interesting, these repeated frames, colliding, refrains, colliding here. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you put him on his cross, then you will know something will be revealed that I am the true and living God. Jesus is explaining that if you want an answer to the question of where is God in the middle of his predicament, if you want an answer to the question of where is God in human suffering and sadness, He is teaching us and he's guiding us and leading us that where God is is he is in the middle of it himself. That where God is revealed to us is in the middle of suffering and tragedy and sadness in Jesus being on the cross. Where is he? John points directly to the truth. There he is upon the cross completely identifying with us in all of the sadness and the shame and the pain and the sorrow. He is with us in that. But not only is he with us, just as one who can console us, but also there upon the cross, he is for us. Where he enters into suffering that all sufferings might cease. This is why he enters into the cross. He is God with us and God for us. This is where he is most profoundly, most explicitly, sharing our sorrow and then bringing our sorrows to an end by reconciling us to God and giving us the hope of the renewed world free from sin. 
This is where your God is. This is who your God is for you. And this is what he has done on this climactic day of the old creation. He's taken the burden of all of this upon himself. Bearing our sins in his body that we might live. Let's pray.